Hey everybody, Magnus here. You know, I was thinking about it just a while ago, and during the year of 2014, I was a guest on Tom Panarese's Pop Culture Affidavit. And then a little bit later on, I was a guest on Michael Bailey's Views from the Long Box. For those of you who haven't been keeping track, those are two of my favorite podcasts of all time. And within the span of just a few months, I was a guest on both of them. So how awesome is that? And that got me to thinking. At this point, pretty much all I need to do is make guest appearances on From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, and Two True Freaks, Comics Monthly Monday. And probably I'd want to throw in an appearance on short box showcase as well. If all three of those things were to happen, you could accurately say that I've pretty much run the board on all of my favorite podcasts ever, and there's really not much left for me to do except slum it with the Dinner for Geeks. Anyway, just thinking about that. Wanted to throw that out there and just see what comes back to me. Now enjoy the rest of the episode. Hey, your attention, please! This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. No! Dr. Doom wears body armor to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Yeah. Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus. Comics, movies, and TV shows are what I love, so comics, movies, and TV shows are what I talk about. And honestly, there was never any reason to think this week was going to be any different. What is kind of different, though, is this time... I'm talking about some more Spider-Man comics. You see, Spider-Man's one character that I've just not paid a whole lot of attention to during the lifetime of this show. That's too bad, really, because it's not that I don't like Spider-Man. I do. The issue here is 
I just don't know too much about Spider-Man. And there's a reason for that. When it comes to Spider-Man, I'm kind of out of my depth a little bit. I mean, it's one thing to love the Stan Lee, John Romita run on Spider-Man. Everybody loves that run on Spider-Man. I've said before that I think there's something about the DNA of all comic book fans everywhere that kind of requires them to love the Lee Romita Spider-Man stuff. We can't agree on jack shit else as a fandom, but by God, we know that Lee and Romita just fucking ruled on Spider-Man. My point here is that saying you dig the Lee Romita Spider-Man doesn't mean you get to call yourself a Spider-Man fan. And you can disagree with that if you want, but just remember that it's my podcast, which basically means that I'm right and you're wrong. Even if you agree with me, you're still wrong because you're not me. I'm right. But anyway, there's a long, boring, pointless, and completely fucking drawn out story about why I've never really been able to get into Spider-Man, but I talked about that back in my episode about the untold tales of Spider-Man from a few weeks ago. So if you want to know why I was unable to get into Spider-Man in spite of my absolute best of intentions, go check that out. It's worth listening to. And that, that brings me to today's subject. More Spider-Man comics. What I wanted to do when I started this podcast is talk about comics that I've never read before, but that I've loved for years. And I've been pretty open about that, too. But another goal was to read comics that were totally new to me and talk about those as well. And one obvious candidate here is Spider-Man. Now, I've always liked a lot of the basic concepts of Spider-Man, but as I said before, I've had problems when I've tried to become a fan of Spider-Man. But this is a good opportunity to change all that. What I decided to do was check out either Spider-Man comics I did manage to read way back when I was a kid, what few there were anyway, or else read famous storylines that people are buzzing about to this day. And rest assured, I'll be coming back to this in, in the future. I couldn't fit everything into one of these six episode series, no matter how hard I tried, so bet your ass I'll come back to Spider-Man in the future. There'll be plenty of it. But like I said, what I had here was a golden opportunity to read some fairly popular and well-regarded storylines and tell you what I thought about them. Seems obvious enough. So, in case you couldn't figure out where all this is going, I've read some Spider-Man comics that, uh, that I've never even touched before, and I'm here now to talk about them. So, Amazing Spider-Man number 298 begins high above Yonkers, New York as... Chance drops in on a U.S. Treasury Department safe house where federal agents are protecting a a whistleblower. Chance murders the whistleblower and zips off to collect his winnings. Not because any of this is crucial to the plot, which is about to unfold, but because it's important to set up what a badass Chance is early on, and murdering somebody protected by federal agents armed with automatic weapons is a pretty good way to do that. Meanwhile, Mary Jane Parker is finishing up another modeling gig. She tries calling Peter to let him know that they have a chance to move into Bedford Towers after all. 
The Bedford's one of the swankiest places on the west side, and Peter could never afford that on his own, but his wife's loaded from all of her modeling gigs and shit. Peter tries looking for more photo assignments at the Daily Bugle, but Robbie says they don't have anything right now. Joy Mercado overhears all that and tells Peter about a story that someone tipped her off about. She doesn't have time for it on her own because she has other stories to work on, but she offers to write a story based on Peter's notes and photos if he does all the legwork. Then they can split the fee and Peter agrees to this. The deal is that arms are being delivered via cargo ship. Peter can take pictures. Peter then swings home as Spider-Man as apparently that's cheaper than riding a bus, which is the only reason that Peter travels this way. Once he gets back uh, to his and Mary Jane's apartment, he realizes the place has been kind of a dump. But then he gets the brilliant idea of doing something to impress Mary Jane when she comes home. Peter decides to greet Mary Jane in his underwear when she gets there, so imagine his surprise when he finds that Mary Jane has brought her friend Sandy home with her. Elsewhere, Nicholas Powell gets a beep on his beeper, which beeps when people send message to the beeper so that Nicholas can call them and find out why they sent a beep to his beeper because this was the late 80s. And most people don't carry pagers around anymore, so you might need to be reminded of just what the fuck these things were. But anyway, so Nicholas Powell gets a beep, so he has to end his date with a married chick early so he can go home and spring into action as chance. While he's changing into his chance outfit, he helpfully remembers his motives for doing what he does and why he never charges for his services, but instead wagers a fee against his success in completing any job successfully. Which, as far as supervillain motivations go, is pretty fucking unique and original, actually. Meanwhile, Peter and Mary Jane have finished off their dinner and decide it's time for, shall we say, dessert. But they don't have that kind of marriage, so they send Sandy home early so they can get down to business. Brown chicken, brown cow. Elsewhere, the board members of the Life Foundation are discussing the merits of hiring Chance to take care of their problem. Some members of the board would prefer someone less flashy and obvious than Chance. But Carlton Drake, the chairman of the board, basically tells the naysayers to go fuck themselves. Right around then, Chance arrives and Drake tells him that the deal is that arms that are being delivered via cargo ship and Peter needs to take pictures. Chance's objective is to steal them and deliver them to the Life Foundation. Chance agrees to it and off he goes. The next night, Spider-Man watches the arms delivery when Chance appears out of nowhere and opens fire on the joint. Spider-Man decides to stand down since he's already gotten the pictures and notes he needs for Joy's story about the arms shipment. He realizes he can make a second story and get more pictures from whoever Chance is working for. Two stories, two paychecks, what's not to like? Right at that moment, though, some bullshit or other happening in X-Factor number 25 knocks out power across the entire city of New York. Some guard realizes that this is his big chance to be a hero, and so he springs into action, but Chance kills him for it. Spider-Man jumps into action, and he and Chance duke it out for a while. Chance causes a distraction, so Spider-Man nails him with a spider tracer, and then saves the guards and ship's crew. After making the drop-off to the Life Foundation, Chance is double-crossed and tasered into unconsciousness. Back home, though, Peter whines and complains because the guard died, and really, it's all his fault because he didn't zip into action right away. Mary Jane changes the subject to herself, and bitches at Peter for thinking of 
for thinking about her and that all she wants is money. That's enough to get Peter to forget about the man who died, and so he and Mary Jane flirt for a little while and probably do other stuff. Meanwhile, somewhere in the Bronx, some dude sits in the dark staring at newspaper clippings about Spider-Man. The guy's built like a brick shithouse, and he's got a serious mat on for all things Spider-Man. I mean, this dude's pissed. Amazing Spider-Man number 299 starts with Spider-Man getting caught in the act of hitching a free ride on a truck. A cop eventually orders Spider-Man off the truck, even though there's a pretty good chance a master supervillain and a bunch of Life Foundation gangsters are riding inside. Spidey swings home and finds himself locked out of, out of his usual skylight entrance. Turns out Mary Jane has the maid over cleaning up the place and didn't want Spider-Man to come swinging in through the skylight. Peter whines about Chance getting away, so Mary Jane invites him to a party to cheer him up. Meanwhile, the Life Foundation truck has arrived at their hideout with Chance still unconscious and in their clutches. As all that's going on, Peter and Mary Jane are hanging out at the trendy spawning club where Peter's uncomfortable as all fuck and MJ's the center of attention. Back at the Life Foundation's hideout, Chance is being grilled by Life Foundation thugs about how his gears and weapons work. Chance tells him to go piss up a rope because he's keeping his mouth shut. Back home, Peter's still worrying about the stolen shipment of military-grade weapons. He knows he needs to find them and locate Chance before he can put all this to bed. MJ once again changes the subject to herself and tells Peter to be careful because she can't live without him. The next day, Peter searches the Daily Bugle archives for all the bullshit he can find about Carlton Drake, but mostly comes up empty. The only halfway relevant thing he can find is that Drake was involved with some kind of agricultural research project at Empire State University. Later, at the university, Peter uses their computers to check on Drake. Turns out what Drake, what Drake withdrew from was a rent-free lease for the university. At several hundred acres in northern New Jersey, where it looked like the truck Spider-Man rode in on was headed. Peter thumbs a ride to the New Jersey property, spots several armed guards, and figures he's probably found the right place, so Spider-Man swings into action. He eventually finds Chance and frees him while Chance gives the necessary exposition about the Life Foundation. They're basically a, a group of extremely wealthy survivalists involved in possibly the stupidest real estate scheme of all time. Even Lex Luthor from Superman the Movie would say these guys are dreaming. But because it's a story, I'll roll with it. Freeing Chance sets off an alarm and then all hell breaks loose. With no real alternative, Spider-Man's forced to team up with Chance so they can fight their way out of this mess. Chance destroys all the stolen art all artillery since the fuckers never paid him in the first place and then Chance gives Spider-Man a ride back to Manhattan. Meanwhile, as Peter's out risking his life as Spider-Man, Mary Jane's pissed off and only thinking about herself because Peter didn't leave a message for her about letting her know that he'd be out putting his ass on the line and poor Mary Jane, she's such a fucking victim of this cruel and unfair world where she's a pampered fucking supermodel. Fuck Mary Jane, I hate her. You know, I used to like her, so I wasn't too upset when she came home and was attacked by some fucking lunatic who's built like a brick shithouse wearing an all-black outfit just like Spider-Man's costume. The tease for the next issue calls him Venom, so that's what I'm going to call him from now on. Amazing Spider-Man number 300 picks up just about where number 299 left off with Mary Jane cowering in a corner 
as Spider-Man finally gets home from risking his life to recover all those stolen weapons. MJ tells Peter that some big bodybuilding motherfucker wearing a costume just like Spider-Man's black outfit just broke into the house, scared the fertilizer out of her, and life is just miserable for rich, famous fucking supermodels, and fuck you, Mary Jane. That guy wants to kill your husband. Stop thinking about yourself already. So Peter says they're going to check into a hotel until they can figure all this shit out. Meanwhile, Venom arrives back at his house and seems to be talking to himself. That, or he's talking to his costume... But that would require his costume to somehow be alive, and <laughs> that's crazy talk, because there's never been a living costume any time in Spider-Man's publication history. Elsewhere, Spider-Man realizes that whoever broke into the apartment was wearing the old symbiote he used to have back before he had to forcibly get rid of it, way back in Web of Spider-Man number one. Peter wanted to get rid of the symbiote before it killed him, which kind of means that the costume isn't a symbiote. By definition, it's a parasite, since symbiotes live off their hosts to the benefit of the host and the symbiote itself. Parasites, however, eventually kill the, ho the host. But, whatever, it's just a fucking story. Next morning, Peter wakes up to find Mary Jane finalizing a deal for them to move into the Bedford Towers completely without consulting him, because she's scared shitless of going back to the apartment where Venom broke in, looking to kill her husband, but MJ's frightened, and because the bitch only ever thinks of herself, of course she called in favors to speed up their move into the new condo. Oh, and she wants Peter to take pictures of the new swanky apartment before they move in, and then after. Jeez, what a tart. Anyway, so after picking up the mega-fucking sonic cannon of doom from the Baxter building, Peter swings by the old Chelsea apartment, finds a message from Aunt May reminding him and Mary Jane about dinner at her house that night, and then gets everything sorted out at the apartment. Later, Peter wanders the streets of New York, but even though his spider sense isn't going off, Peter can't help but feel like he's in danger somehow. It's as if he's being watched. Eventually, Peter gets so freaked out by it that he ducks into an alley, puts on his Spider-Man gear, and swings to wherever the fuck he's going. Later, at Bedford Towers, Peter and MJ check out their new condo. Peter takes pictures, but feels bad that he can't contribute much to pay for the new condo. Mary, De Mary Jane decides to cheer Peter up, so she volunteers to let him take naked pictures of her. So let's get this straight. Mary Jane's idea of changing the subject and getting Peter's mind off his troubles is getting him to take pictures of her? Yeah, because there aren't enough people doing that already. Jeez, what a tart. Later, at Aunt May's boarding house, Peter, Mary Jane, Aunt May, and some other strangers all have dinner together while Nathan Lubinsky busts Peter's balls about never calling or visiting Aunt May. Mary Jane, for once, shows a little bit of consideration for someone other than herself by telling Aunt May that she shouldn't be a stranger and that she doesn't have to isolate herself from she and Peter now that she and Peter are married. So Aunt May tells Peter that she'd better be the first guest they, they invite over to the new condo. Elsewhere, Venom's hanging around Our Lady of Saints Catholic Church in Lower Manhattan where he first found the symbiote that isn't a symbiote, but which everybody calls a symbiote, so I'll have to call a symbiote too, even though the so-called symbiote is actually a parasite, when Venom gets approached by a cop, attempting to apprehend him. That turns out to be the dumbest move the cop ever made, as Venom kills him without even breaking a sweat. 
That, the next night, all of Peter and Mary Jane's friends helped them to move into Bedford Towers. I guess Mary Jane can swing rent on a place like that, and a maid to clean it, but apparently can't afford to hire a fucking moving company. Jeez, what a tart. But whatever. Anyway, Peter spots Venom swinging around buildings just like Spider-Man does, so Peter switches clothes and swings off after him and tails him back to an abandoned building. Peter depends on his spider sense to warn him of any danger, which turns out to be a huge fucking mistake as Venom can somehow thwart spider sense. Spider-Man finds that out the hard way when Venom sucker punches him the minute he crawls inside the window of the building. Venom unmasks himself and exposes his true identity as Eddie Brock. From there, he exposits his origin story. This following part comes from Venom's Wikipedia page. The first Venom was Eddie Brock, a reporter for the Daily Globe, before it comes to light that he has fabricated a story revealing the identity of the Sin Eater. Shortly after the news was published, Spider-Man catches the real Sin Eater, disgracing Brock as a news reporter and costing him his job and then his wife. Now writing for cheap gossip magazines, Brock centers his frustration on utter loathing of Spider-Man, which only escalates when it's revealed that Brock has cancer. In response to this news, Brock begins working out, bringing his body to levels of amazing athletic performance. Still unable to cope with his misfortune, Brock contemplates suicide and goes to a church to pray for forgiveness. Meanwhile, the symbiote, having recovered and needing another human host in order to survive, finds itself psychically attracted to Brock for both his increased adrenaline and mutual hatred for Spider-Man. That's the end of the wiki page. As Venom helpfully explains all this, Spider-Man tries to sneakily reach for the mega-fucking-sonic cannon of doom. Venom catches him in the act, though, and the fight's on. Spider-Man eventually manages to blast Venom with the mega-fucking-sonic cannon of doom and thinks he's won, but Venom eventually pounces on him and knocks his ass out. Spider-Man comes to in the Our Lady of Saints Catholic Church bell tower where all this shit first started. Venom has trapped Spider-Man and webbed him up inside a bell so that when the clock strikes midnight, Spider-Man will be squash like grape. Venom has to leave the tower, though, or else the noise will hurt the symbiote that isn't a symbiote, but which everybody calls a symbiote, so I'll have to call a symbiote too, even though the so-called symbiote is actually a parasite. Imagine Venom's surprise when he finds that Spider-Man's escaped from that bell trap worthy of Adam West. Spider-Man eventually figures out a way to defeat Venom, which just about dispels that misconception people have that Spider-Man could never defeat Venom all by himself. Anyway, so Spider-Man eventually figures out a way to defeat Venom and then drags his ass back to the Baxter building where a temporary cell's been rigged up just for Venom. Back home, Mary Jane gives Peter attitude because of his costume. She's scared of it now that Venom wears it. Never mind the fact that Venom only broke into the Chelsea apartment to kill Peter, Never mind the fact that Venom just tried his dead-level best to kill Peter, first with that bell tower trap worthy of Adam West, and later with his bare fucking hands. This is all about Mary Jane, so she pretty much says Peter's not getting any more lovin' until he starts wearing his old costume. Jeez, what a tart. And so it is that Peter goes back to wearing the traditional Spider-Man costume. The end. (sighs) So, what did I think? Well... The thought crossed my mind to include the death of Gene DeWolf storyline in this review, since it kind of sets these issues up. 
But then I realized, if I include the death of Gene DeWolf, why not include Web of Spider-Man number one? And if I really wanted to put all this shit in context, shouldn't I also do something for Secret Wars as well? What I realized after a while is that there's really no way to put all of this into context without including something like 20 fucking years worth of comics, at which point Amazing Spider-Man number 298 to 300, you know, the very issues this episode is supposed to be about, those Amazing Spider-Man comics would become kind of incidental. Ultimately, you have to understand that there's simply no way you can put this story into a modern trade paperback form and summary, no matter how hard you try. So in the end, you decide to just cover these three amazing Spider-Man issues and let the chips fall where they may. That's all you can do. But anyway, honestly, I really dug these issues. I mean, yeah, Mary Jane's an annoying, aggravating brat of a human being. There's no way around it. And I gotta say, these particular issues at least didn't make me regret the fact that the spider marriage has been completely removed from continuity. Now, I realize that's a sticking point for some of you to this day. And that's fine. I respect your point of view. I mean, look, keep in mind, you're the one that has decades invested in reading stories about that marriage. I'm the asshole who couldn't even get through the clone saga... And so I never really became a Spider-Man fan in the first place. All I'm saying is that these issues reminded me of all the reasons I had a love-hate relationship with Mary Jane. <clears throat> She's bitchy, whiny, bratty, annoying, and just unfucking pleasant If I knew somebody this shallow and vapid in real life... I... Actually, I'd never know somebody this shallow and vapid in real life because it'd never go beyond the introduction stage. But anyway, when you move away from that stuff, you start getting into what I think is the gestalt of the David Michelinie run on Amazing Spider-Man. Michelinie understands that what makes for a good Spider-Man story and then puts it all in here. Peter needs to face big-time adversity in his private life as Peter and his public life as Spider-Man. Michelinie throws in heaping helpings of that, but without being obvious about it, you know? Hey, kids, I know this is what you love most about old webhead, so I'm throwing in a bunch of familiar bullshit to remind you of how awesome the Stan Lee run was. Michelinie's stuff never comes off like that. Every problem Peter has in these comics feels organic to the story and to the characters. And I, I have a pretty good idea of what comes in future issues, so even where Peter triumphs here in these three issues, I already know he's being set up for future problems and trouble, and so that all works too. Dialogue is spot on. That's something else. Even scenes with heavy exposition or written intelligently and cleanly, and that they, they just don't come off as the heavy-handed exposition shit that, let's face it, they would be under any number of other writers. Incidentally, bugs the fuck out of me when people call that stuff monologuing. I mean, look, that was 
funny and kind of insightful in The Incredibles, but these days, people need to stop saying it. It is no longer clever. But anyway, even the scenes with heavy exposition and plot information are written in, an, in a just an engaging way. You never get bored by it because Michelini knows to mix in revelations with the exposition so that new information is mixed in with old stuff, and it just keeps everything fresh. And I guess on that subject, speaking of Venom, I really like this era of Venom. True, we really aren't too far off from the time when Venom would be drawn with that giant fucking tongue with green snot dripping off it, and not very long after that, Marvel would try like hell to rehabilitate the character and kind of turn him into a sort of anti-hero. But in this era, this era, Venom's just one sick fuck who wants to kill Spider-Man by any means necessary. No protector bullshit going on here. Venom's a supervillain, and that's all there is to it. And at least as far as Eddie Brock's concerned, that's how I think the character works best. Now, I realize Venom became extremely fucking popular, and Marvel wanted to capitalize on that. But you don't do that by transforming the character into something that he just isn't. At this point in his history, Michelinie wrote Venom as a villain, and McFarlane drew him without that obnoxious fucking mouth with a giant tongue and all that bullshit, and this is the Venom that I prefer. No, fr no frills, no forced and artificial character rehabilitation, no bullshit. Just a sick son of a bitch with a major grudge against Spider-Man. I mean... I mean, why mess with something that fucking simple? You know? Anyway, what I'm saying here is that I've always liked David Michelinie, and his run on Amazing Spider-Man is pretty much the gold standard for why. He doesn't come onto a book and look for ways to turn it into a David Michelinie book. Instead, what he looks for is the stuff that always made the character or characters work in the past. You know? Those classic hallmarks of that character's best stories and then nonchalantly sprinkles those things into his own stories. And the end result of, a, of David Michelinie's approach is that you get something that's at once very familiar but still very unique. These characters are always in character, no matter how new they are or how old they are or how insane their current predicament is or whatever else. It all rings true. Now, Todd McFarlane. You know, it's become more and more trendy to pick on Todd McFarlane and his art since the late 90s or so. There was a time when criticizing McFarlane on an artistic level, you could only really do that for shock value, but it's not 1992 anymore. Now, people want to bash on everything the guy's ever done, and Honestly, I feel like that's undeserved. Is McFarlane the, the best thing to ever happen to, to comics? Eye of the beholder. I can't answer that. All I can do is speak for myself and say no. But at the same time, I really enjoy his work on Amazing Spider-Man in, uh, in general, and these issues in particular. On a technical level, McFarlane has got a strong command of all the fundamentals. He usually keeps the action moving straight. Not always, but, but usually. 
If a character is talking and facing left on page 2, they'll continue talking and facing left on page 3, unless there's a compelling reason for them to change direction. Not always, but most of the time. Usually. In the majority of cases. The exception that proves the rule comes in Amazing Spider-Man number 300, and this is where McFarlane kind of breaks away from that. The first page shows Mary Jane looking to the left and speaking to someone just out of range. Page 2 shows Mary Jane looking right and speaking to that same someone. Now, obviously there's a pretty severe change in direction, and it's completely unmotivated, it's unnecessary, it's distracting, and just plain jarring. But like I said, that's the exception that proves the rule. McFarlane always develops unique layouts for each page. The panels are arranged in ways that, honestly, they maximize the way the story that he and Michelini are telling and what they're both going for. It's rare when there's a wasted bit of space on the page when, when McFarlane's drawing it. Case in point. In issue number 300, page 14 has nine panels on it. And you know what? Fuck it. Just for the moment, let's just put all this stuff on pause for a minute. How, when was the last time you saw an artist put nine panels on a page? Just checking. But on top of all that, nothing ever... I guess getting back to my notes, nothing ever really feels crammed down and forced onto the page. Every panel is unique, it's the exact size it needs to be, and it advances the story visually almost as much as Michelini does textually. In fact, the bottom five panels on page 14 pretty handily illustrate the passage of time, geography, and distance. And McFarlane makes it seem so effortless. Now, is Todd McFarlane the visual storytelling champ that say, Jack Kirby or Kurt Swan are? No. On pages 26, 27, 28, and 29 in issue number 300, McFarlane inserts a panel at the bottom of each page showing Spider-Man's hand sneakily reaching for the mega-fucking Sonic Cannon of Doom. On pages 26, 27, and 28, that's all fine. His hand is getting closer and closer to the mega-fucking Sonic Cannon of Doom. But at the bottom of page 29, rather than seeing Spidey hold the mega-fucking Sonic Cannon of Doom or whatever else, it's just a close-up of Spidey with a thought balloon saying, NOW! And it just, it wrecks the momentum that McFarlane had been building up to that point because we don't see the mega-fucking Sonic Cannon of Doom in the panel, and to me, it's just a lost opportunity. Nitpicky, yeah, but there it is. Also, I've said before that I mostly look at McFarlane's style as being an exaggerated John Byrne with more lines. I believed it then, and I believe it now. And I'm not even saying that as a criticism either. I mean, shit, if you're going to copy from somebody, copy from the best, right? But at the same time, I never understood why people lost their shit over McFarlane's line style. I mean, it's kind of neat looking, I guess. But again, it just... It reminds me of John Byrne. McFarlane is great on a technical level, but I never understood why McFarlane attained that superstar status that he ultimately got. 
that said, his work on these three issues of Amazing Spider-Man, this is mostly first-rate stuff. I mean, yeah, there are some minor flubs and nitpicks here and there, but my point in all of this is that poor McFarlane gets picked on way too much, and mostly for flaws that he doesn't even have. Now, I can chalk some of that up to, I guess, I guess you could call it a delayed backlash to how hyped up he was back in the late 80s and early 90s, but at the same rate, guys, he's better on a technical level than he gets credit for these days. I don't think I'll ever be some kind of big-time McFarlane devotee, but hopefully I've at least set the record straight a little bit here about how good he is. Guys, sooner or later, I'll cover something drawn by Jim Lee. If you think I'll be half as nice about Jim Lee's work as I've been about McFarlane's, you're out of your fucking mind. So, this is a promise I'll make to each of you. I don't know when, but I will revisit the Michelinie McFarlane run on Amazing Spider-Man and cover a couple more issues. I really enjoy this run on, uh, on Spider-Man, and honestly, I don't think either McFarlane or Michelinie really get their due when it comes to the really fucking great work they did in this stretch of comics. And so, yes, you can expect to hear a lot more about this in the future. Just fuck to find a win. So, all right, so I think that's about it for this time. I'm going to take a break and be right back after these messages. It was the dawn of the third age of comics, 15 years after the rise of the Comics Code Authority. The Bronze Age was a dream given form. Its goal? To portray superheroes in a way that was socially relevant by tackling real-world issues. It's a catch-all, a place to explore monsters, demons, gunslingers, gods, and superheroes alike. Writers and artists wrapped in house styles of sophisticated realism, creating the stuff of legends. There is no assurance of quality, but it's our last best hope for comic books. This is a retrospective of the true golden age. The year is 1970. The name of the podcast, Uncovering the Bronze Age. Tune into our feed for regular content at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Also home to the Quarterbin Podcast and the Shortbox Showcase. This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Shortbox Showcase. But then again may have. About a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead. Tintin. Black Lightning. White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory, when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way, Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners and the great feats of editing not yet performed. This is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo, and this is Ultra- Of how they spoke at length. Continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession 
is The Force Confession. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers. And the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search on iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. back now and I've got a little bit of feedback that I need to go through here and if I sound a little bit lethargic I just I ask only that you remember that it's been a pretty long fucking day so anyway to get into the email though this is dated July the 22nd sent by Brian Hughes subject line is Chris Evans feelings And I'm just going to take a shot in the dark and say that old Brian here is probably uh, responding to comments I've made about Chris Evans and his retirement from acting and, you know, in so doing, just whining and complaining about his good fortune when... Well, anyway. You either know what I think about it by now or you don't, and I guess if you don't, you should maybe go back and listen to the epi- listen to the episodes where I talk about it. Anyway, Chris Evans' feelings is the title of this email, the subject line of it, and Brian Hughes writes, Magnus, a thousand grovels in your presence. I bow to the superior podcaster supreme. And now, a word about actors. Try to remember they are a fickle bunch. They have to reinvent themselves often to stay fresh. 
many will say things like, he did at different points in their careers only to turn around on it later. Remember, remember Leonard Nimoy's flip-flops? In cases where I allow an actor to affect the way I watch movies, I will point to Sean Penn. I hate his public face. Can't stand him. As a result, I don't ever go out of my way to watch him in a movie, regardless of how good he might be. Now, I can't accept that he is a good actor, but he takes his attention to his craft way too seriously. I'm going to put your email on pause and react to this and say, You know, dude, on the one hand, I completely understand where you're coming from on this, right? you got to be able to divorce somewhat. You have to be able to divorce uh, the art from the artist. I get that. But I gotta tell you, man, I mean, the way that Chris Evans has comported himself, or actually I say has comported himself, I mean, it's a, a long time ago now, at the time that I record this versus the time that you hear it, but right now it's actually, eh, it's still sort of timely, but by the time you guys hear this, probably really fucking out of date. But the way that Chris Evans has comported himself through this whole thing, I gotta be honest, man. It really has taken a, uh, a toll on the way that I see, uh, or rather the way that I enjoy those movies. And again, it's not like I have anything personal against Chris Evans or anything like that. It's more from the angle that, you know, if he doesn't care, why should I care? You know? And I, you know, nobody ever really called him on it, but Tom Hardy pretty much had the same attitude about playing Bane. I think he called it. Uh, like fast food filmmaking or something like that. You know, you, j you know, th they take your order, thank you, drive through, and then here comes your summer blockbuster on the other side. You know, and it's not a real acting challenge and fucking blah blah blah. And honestly, the only other thing most of us have probably known Tom Hardy from is Star Trek Insurrection, the end of another franchise wherein I wouldn't say he covered himself in glory. You know, and look. I, and, and like I said, I'm not trying to bash on you, or for that matter, even completely disagree. I, I guess I'm what I'm really trying to do is just elaborate on why it is that Chris Evans' attitude about this has just kind of turned me off somewhat to Captain America. And I, and I respect and I understand everything that you're saying about Sean Penn. And you know what? I kind of feel the same way about Sean Penn, but... In the case of Sean Penn, it's because I think Sean Penn is a fucking asshole. All right? No more complicated than that. I think he's a complete dickhead of a human being. If he was to fall off the face of the earth tomorrow, I'm not going to lower my flag to half-mast. You know? And it's not... So, this is a little bit different in that I don't really have any kind of real animosity towards Chris Evans. I guess I just wish he would have kept his fucking mouth shut, you know? And this, is, again, is not to diminish your point. I completely understand it. I'm just saying that there's a little bit of a nuance here, and well, anyway, I th either you get it or you don't, and I'm thinking you probably do, so I can move right along. In the times that he, meaning Sean Penn, in the times he has shown up in a movie or a show that I was watching, I was distracted by the fact of his presence. It didn't matter how good he was. The recent Walter Mitty is a good example of this. I enjoyed the movie... Then he shows up and takes me right out of the film. 
My point in all of this is that I now try to not read any of the actor or celebrity press leading up to a movie. I even stay away from the main press leading up to movies now because they try to ruin the experience and tell us everything. It's like everyone is trying to be Harry Knowles, the way his site was in the beginning these days. I'm going to put your email back on pause and say, you know what, dude, that's a really good fucking idea. You know, basically, I guess in the two, three, four weeks before some movie that you're keeping an eye on drops, you just fucking go on lockdown, you know, and just avoid everything. And honestly, for as much merit as that idea has to it, and it does have a lot of merit, sir, it's going to be a little bit challenging in the social media age in which we live where, honestly, I mean, at the time that I record this, Guardians of the Galaxy just came out. To tell you how long ago I recorded this, it just hit theaters. And people were losing their shit over the spoilers that were getting just carelessly thrown around on, on the Facebook newsfeed. And dude, you know what? I get it. You know, you don't want to have certain key things spoiled for you. And to me, it's less that I try to avoid spoilers and more that I just don't give a damn about them anymore. That's pretty much where I'm coming from when it comes to spoilers. So this is a kind of hard thing to do. But to tie it kind of back to your point, you know, your idea here of avoiding press and, you know, junkets and stuff like that in the, you know, during the, uh, the build-up to a movie... I think it's a really good idea. It's got a lot of merit to it. But it's just, it's one of those things that I don't get to control what some idiot posts on Facebook or what, other, or what some other idiot shares on Facebook. And then before you know it, I'm now exposed to, I don't know, the fact that, I don't know, uh, the, the director of some movie coming up soon that I'm looking forward to hates Led Zeppelin. All right. Well, now I've got to make moral fucking evaluations about this guy, because to me, to hate Led Zeppelin is borderline a crime against humanity. So if you're look, it's one thing you're just not into them, but to actively dislike them, to hate them, to run them down. We're going to have an issue there, dude. Right. And suppose something like that. And I realize totally hypothetical, but suppose something like that were to happen, you know. And I honestly have no real control over that. And I don't want to sound like, you know, crybaby Mr. Whiny victim over here or anything like that. I happen to think that we're all complicit in our own uh, victimhood in some way or another. So, of all people, I have absolutely no right to complain. I'm just saying that, you know, you've got a great idea. It's completely bulletproof. Except for the stuff that people post on Facebook, you know? Anyway, so, you know, again, it's not that I disagree with you. In fact, it, it is that I agree with you, but it's just I see complications here, that's all. So, as to your point, though, about Harry Knowles, I got to tell you, I sort of missed out on that phase of his career. At the time that Harry Knowles was making it big on the Internet and everything, I was actually more of a, a devotee of uh, Corona coming attractions. And I think it was... I think the web address for that was corona.bc.ca. No sense looking for it now because the website is long defunct. But I went there for my movie gossip because, honestly, no bullshit. You just got the updates, you know? And I followed a lot of movies through from script to release date 
on corona.bc.ca. Corona, coming attractions, right? It was just a neat little website, and I really miss the fact that it's gone and everything. And anyway, so the point is, basically, Corona ended up getting put out of business by the likes of Harry fucking Knowles. So, anyway. And, dude, I'm really ranting a lot, and I'm, you know, kind of lashing out at what you're saying here. And, dude, I really hope you're not taking this personally, because, first of all, I love your email here, and I really appreciate you taking the time to write in, and I don't want you to think you're being bashed on or picked on or anything like that, you know? So, anyway. I mean, we can all afford to be a little bit classy here, am I right? Anyway. So, to get back into... uh, uh, Brian's email, though, he writes, Evans is in his I'm not Spock phase. It didn't take long, uh, it, or rather, it didn't take Nimoy long to change his mind and get Harvey Bennett to bring Spock back after killing him. BTW, on your Superboy podcast, so far the sound effects were not detracting from the overall experience. Now, the drag you took off the cigarette at the very beginning made me laugh my ass off, though that was not really a sound effect, but a character moment. You could hear the relief in your voice and your greeting, and I'm going to put this email back on pause and say, yeah, you know, I maybe need to talk about that. For those of you who don't know, did a show about uh, Superboy, Volume 1, Number 150. It was all part of this huge... Uh, Superman 76th anniversary mega series I did back in 2014, and one of the comics that I talked about was Superboy Volume 1, number 150. And at the time that I recorded that, I was uh, sitting at my computer, smoking like a chimney, and, you know, basically just wanted to finish off a cigarette, and then I would start recording. And so I... Basically, the very beginning of that is me finishing off a cigarette. Then I started recording, and I didn't... I guess I forgot to erase that part, you know, take it out and everything. And, um, yeah, so that's basically what happened. And I ended up, when I noticed my my little goof there about a week before the show went live... I was really too lazy to fix it, and so I just thought, well, fuck it, I'll just leave it in. I mean, by now, if you don't know that I smoke, I don't know what to tell you, dude. So, anyway, but I'm glad you enjoyed it. You know, it was completely unintentional, but um, I'm really glad you enjoyed it, and thank you, because I actively solicited feedback about the uh, sound effects in that in in that episode because I just wasn't sure what the rain and the thunder and the lightning if that really came across all that well and everything so I don't know so uh, anyway point is thank you appreciate it so anyway get back into uh, Brian's email here he writes you keep recording them I'll keep listening to them thanks Brian Hughes and dude thank you Brian uh, this was a First off, this is just a really welcome email, so, you know, thank you. And again, if you take nothing else away from all of this, I'm not disagreeing with you, and I'm for damn sure not bashing on you. I don't want you to feel like you're being pushed around here, so I really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, you know, write in, and uh, thanks a million. So, next up, this is an email that came through from my old friend, Fanboy MS Prime. This is dated July the 29th, entitled, The Superman Sandman Saga. It isn't Mystery Theater. Fanboy Miss Prime writes, Hey, Magnus. Sorry my last few emails will be late. I actually did manage to go through the Back to the Bins backlog. Now to finish the emails to them and likely get a two-part email show that they'd have to cover just for me. 
Anyway, I've heard about the Sandman saga, but never really read it. Glad it's taken better than Denny O'Neill's ending to the Super Sons. Yeah, that one. Oh, boy. There's a reason a certain podcaster is annoyed how that went down. A very good reason. And I'm going to put this email on pause and say, Dude, I have no clue what you're talking about here. I, honestly, um, I haven't heard anybody in podcast land recently. Or ages ago, for those of you listening right now, as this show comes out. Lashing out against that whole Super Sons thing, so I don't know. I'm kind of drawing a blank on it myself, to be perfectly blunt with you. So, really not sure what you're referring to here, for that matter. Specifically, whom you're referring to. But, uh, you know, if you want to send me an email and clarify on all this, that would be terrific. Anyway, back into Prime's email, he writes, On to book critics and self-contained stories. Well... There's likely a good reason they don't include Earth-X on their lists, as that motherfucker is a punch to the face of the Marvel Universe. Good story. And Universe-X is fun as well. Paradise-X? More behind-the-scenes stuff you don't like involved in terms of how that ended. Of course, I don't promote Earth-X like I have other limited series and issues, because that's a very dense read and exploration of the Marvel Universe. That's not a light read or small-scale story. Exact opposite of that, to be perfectly honest. You won't see a snooty book reviewer touch Avengers Forever. That's Kurt Busiek in a knife fight with Avengers' snarled and complicated continuity, and he more or less wins. And Bendis clearly never read it or only cares about the stuff he wrote. That was supposed to be witty, but came across as my annoyance with him, which I assume means Bendis. Another thing, I wonder, if it makes snooty book reviewers uh, explode is a crisis on Infinite Earth's hardcover. Given that's not self-contained in any sense of the word, and I'm just going to put this all on pause, and for those of you who don't know, basically, if you look at the... If you look at the, the, the usual suspects of... Uh, comic books, oh, I'm sorry, graphic novels that uh, the snooterati fucking New York Times uh, bestseller just book critic fucking douchebag elite, the ones they tend to gravitate to, tend to kind of have a few common things in, in, uh, in common. Hmm. Anyway, uh, The Dark Knight Returns, it pretty much relies on you having some type of general awareness of and vocabulary for Batman. It's not really mired too much in continuity. A little bit, not much. Whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow? Again, slightly less mired in continuity than is The Dark Knight Returns, depending on how you look at it. But mostly it relies upon this sort of, I think, shared social Superman largesse that I think we all have access to, to some degree or another. And that is, I think, you know, one of the main entry points for that, for that story. Then you get into Watchmen, the granddaddy of them all. Which, at the time that it was written, Watchmen was a standalone work. You could pretty much 
read from beginning to end, and you didn't need to know anything about these characters. In fact, there was nothing to know about these characters before you started page one of the first issue. And by the time you finished the last page of the final issue, you knew everything you needed to know about them. Everything happened in between. And that, I think, is what ultimately really attracts the the people that always want to put Watchmen at the top of every fucking list and everything. Not to say that Watchmen isn't a good story. I happen to think that it is. In fact, I really enjoy Watchmen. I think it's a great comic book. It's a damn good movie. Gets very little props for that. But I think it's a really good movie. And so I've got nothing against it. But at the same time, I do kind of resent the cult of personality sort of associated with it. This just unfucking speakably huge hype that it always gets. Because, guys, as good as it is, it ain't that good. You know? Nothing is that good. And that's just kind of the way I feel about it. But it, to me, what it means is a lot of these people who put this at the top of their lists, they do so because these books are so divorced from continuity. Like I said, Dark Knight Returns and Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, you can basically read without knowing all that much about Superman or Batman. And I would say arguably the same is true of Swamp Thing. Most of what you need to know, you could argue, begins with Alan Moore's run. And arguably ends with his run too. So... And, you know, that, I think, is what ultimately attracts, you know, people who, I guess you might want to call them, they're almost civilians in terms of their appreciation of comics. They can appreciate those works, though, because it doesn't require them to know anything. That is what's ultimately attractive to them. But anyway, I'm rambling here, so I'm just going to get back into the email and say uh, that Fanboy Miss Prime continues by writing... And there is, of course, Legends, an underrated series that that Legends was, actually. Though I kind of forgot that it was Jason Todd, well, pre-crisis Jason Todd, but still, instead of Dick Grayson in that story. Though, given he was Dick Grayson 2.0 at the time, you can't really blame me. I'm going to put the email back on pause and say, dude, of all people, you don't have to convince me of how cool Legends is. And I'm going to have more to say about Legends in the not-too-distant future, methinks. So, I'm just going to leave that out there. Get back into Prime's email. He writes, I do wonder how many best-of lists include Peter David's body of work. I mean, we got things like when the... Whatever the hell you want to call his Supergirl exposing her secret identity to her parents, and it goes bad. Really bad. And includes a commentary on Power Girl's Atlantean origin with simple and unrefined materials as her weakness, meaning that she could get hit in the head with a tree branch and it hurt her. Much to the shock of the bad guy who did that. To Rick Jones being able to fool the scrolls while dressed up as Bucky on their ship and, and much more. And honestly, dude, I gotta tell you... I don't know how often Peter David's work ends up on those lists, which is kind of ironic if you think about it, given the fact that he has, or at least had, a thriving career as a prose novelist. So there's a sense in which, you know, he should be right up the New York Times crowds, just right up their alley. And I 
apart from, you know, maybe the odd Incredible Hulk issue here and there, I really don't think he shows up on those lists too much. So, hmm, no to tell you. Get back into Prime's email, though, he writes. And if you want to see some serious deconstruction, you need to read the body of work for IDW James Roberts has done with their Gen 1 Transformers universe. As in actual deconstruction and not pissing in it like Michael Bay does. Seriously. He's done the same movie four times more or less now, and with human characters that are such assholes or idiots that no wonder Optimus Prime killed the human bad guy in the last one and exiled himself into space. I would, too, rather than deal with them. And I'm going to put the email back on pause and say, you know what, dude? You're going to take your word for it? And look, it's not that I don't like the Transformers. I do. But it's mostly based on nostalgia from when I was a kid. It's just, it's not something that I've got a, you know, major active interest in. You know, don't want you to feel like I'm crapping on it, because believe me, I'm not. It's just kind of the way that, you know, certain things, certain properties grab grab you as a geek, and certain other ones kind of just leave you cold. And you know what? Doctor Who's one of them for me, dude. I could give a flying fuck about Doctor Who, you know, but other people seem to enjoy it, so it's really not for me to criticize. Although I do wish they'd stop filling up my fucking Facebook feed with all that crap. But you don't never get everything in life. So... Anyway, get back into Prime's email. He writes, Yes, that hidden cabal of Marvel superheroes is called the Illuminati. Well, that's what Tony Stark liked to think of the group's name, and it kind of stuck and spread from there. Well, time to go back and finish off the others. Signed, Fanboy Miss Prime. And dude, thanks you, thank you so much for taking the time to write in again. You know, really appreciate that. Honestly, I've always kind of liked the, like the concept of the Illuminati, because... And I mean the fictional, the Marvel Universe, Illuminati. You know, uh, Doctor Strange, Iron Man, uh, Reed Richards, um, who else? Namor. Who else was in the fucking Illuminati? I forget. Anyway, oh, uh, Professor Xavier and others. And I just kind of like that, because it made sense to me that a delegation from each major corner of the Marvel Universe would meet sooner or later, and sooner or later, they would try to at least somewhat strategize and coordinate and do all that stuff. So, I mean, that's one of those things I just never really had to convince myself too much of, you know. And, I don't know, I always thought that, whatever, I just, I like that stuff, really enjoyed it. So, anyway, so like I say, thank you very much, Fanboy Miss Prime. I appreciate you taking the time to uh, write in like this. And, uh, you know... There's actually more email to go through here, but it's just, I think at this point, I think I'm pretty much tapped out on it for right now. Not in terms of not having any more feedback, because God knows I do, but more that I've been kind of running my mouth for a while now, and it's probably time to shut up and talk about, you know, what's coming next. And in terms of what's uh, coming next, um, basically right now I'm uh, gearing up, and this is the plan, I mean, who the hell knows how things are actually going to work out. At least right now, the plan is for me and John M. Wilson to talk about Spider-Man, Batman, Disordered Minds, the crossover between those two characters. So, you know, that's what's uh, coming up. At least that's what's scheduled, like right now for next week. But we'll see how things work out. But otherwise, I think think that's basically that. For those of you who are interested, you can always um, uh, send me an email 
at trendusmagnus at gmail.com. That's T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S at gmail.com. You know, you can write in with whatever you want. Or for that matter, just record something and send that to me as a uh, as an attachment. And then I can, you know, just drop that into the show. That works too. Um, all correspondence will be read on mic unless you say you don't want it read. Otherwise, the assumption I'm going to make is that this is kosher to read on mic. So just something to be aware of there. Otherwise, I think that's basically it. So bye, everybody. I'll see you next week. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me. And I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy.